Hear the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There was no other commandment greater than these. And the scribes said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me. Merciful God, we give you thanks for your word. Your word which is a light unto our feet. Your word which illumines the path of which you've called us to go. I pray that you would illumine our hearts and our minds this morning, that your spirit would be present with us and among your people, encouraging us, challenging us, exhorting us that we may walk and follow in the ways of Christ. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, uh, growing up, there was a, a house being built just down the road from, from me that we would, we would drive by every day when we were going into city. You know, it starts with you clear the land and then they dug the the, the foundation, and they poured the foundation. And I was excited to see what the house was looking like. I love driving by construction projects, and you kind of are trying to guess, what is that thing going to be? Is it going to be a Chick-fil-A is what my kids always ask. Uh, so far, no, or Trader Joe's. Those are the two things, right? And so I was excited to see, how, what's this house going to look like? What is it, you know, and, and, and then uh, day after day, year after year, it, nothing ever got built. It was just a found. No walls, no roof, no kitchens, no bedrooms, no beautiful front porches. And over time, you know, without the rest of the house built, that foundation began to decay. That thing that started off as strong, that thing that if you built a house on could last hundreds of years, began to chip, began to crack. Weeds grew up around it and the lot is still vacant today. And with decades of storms and weather, it's probably hard to even find on that property. You know, it's one thing to have a solid foundation. It's another thing to build on it. I think this is at the core of what Jesus is teaching us this morning in this interaction, right? The religious elite know God's law inside and out. They have it memorized, uh, but it's become an intellectual ascent only for them, right? They have the right foundation, but they, they haven't done anything with this foundation and how easy it is for us. To make the pursuit of God merely an intellectual ascent. And you know, we read, we study, we argue, we debate, and then we go home and our lives are never changed. We never actually build anything on that foundation that we claim to hold dear. And this is the problem that Jesus is addressing this morning with this scribe. You know, in this series of events here, in this last week of Jesus' life here in Mark, Jesus has been challenged one after another from the religious leaders of the day, which is, there was the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin is like the high court for the Jewish people. 
And so the different groups that, that, that made up the Sanhedrin have been challenging one after another. They challenge him on his authority, like who are you to do these things, on his politics, how does he view uh, Rome and Caesar, on his view of the resurrection, the leaders trying to trick him and, and trip him up and test him so that they would go against the, their foundation as a people, which is the laws of Moses. Because if he says something against Moses, then they have a right to finally get rid of him. And in many, many ways, this question before us this morning about the law is, is the culmination, the root of all the other challenges that have come to Jesus. What is at the core of your faith? What is the most important thing for you? Uh, this, is, and this was a, a live question that was being debated at this time. Uh, Jesus wasn't the first to say that love God, the Shema, is the, is the most important um, thing. But, so this is a live debate at this time. And so they come to him and say, hey, uh, what do you think of this? You know, it's interesting is the Jewish leaders, they actually went on to distinguish between what they called heavy laws and light laws. Heavy laws means things like murder, don't murder, it's a heavy law. And light laws, things like, you know, for us would be like speed limits. I call those featherweight laws. You know, they kind of matter, but not, not really, right? Um, and, so, and so this is something that they're thinking about. Which, when you have hundreds of laws, how do you know which ones to, to, oh, to obey? And at first glance, when you read this, you think, oh, this scribe seems to be the innocent one coming up with a good faith question. But I think as we explore this text, we're going to find he's not as innocent as he may seem. You know, at the beginning, though, verse 29, it says he liked his answer with the Sadducees, which likely means he was on the Pharisees' side on the debate on whether or not the resurrection was real or not. And then later, when the, when the scribe responds to him, Jesus actually calls his answer wise. But then Jesus says, hey, you're not far from the kingdom, which is another way of saying you're actually not in the kingdom. And actually, just a, a few verses down, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, he actually gives a warning against the scribes. He says, these are the ones who profess with their mouths these outward expressions, but their hearts are far from God. Right? They're those who know the law, but aren't transformed by the law. And so there's this actual sense that the scribe isn't as innocent as he first seems. And actually, in Matthew's account of this uh, event, uh, the scribe is said to, to be testing Jesus. So his question is actually meant to trip up Jesus just like the, the other ones, to see if he wrongly uh, elevates himself over the laws and authority over Moses, which would make himself uh, God. And it's, I think it's the subtlety of the question that's the test for him. It's a sneak attack saying, who do you think you are, Jesus, saying the things that you've been saying to us? So this is the, the scene and kind of what's set up before us, which commandment is the greatest? What do you think, Jesus, to this thing? What, what do you think is the foundation to the law? What are we meant to build our lives on? And in his response, I think Jesus is, teaches very important and simple things, and um, it's to love God and to love neighbor. That's the foundation of the law is to love God and love our neighbor. So first, foundation of the law is to love God. Right? Jesus, in surprising fashion here, actually answers the question that was given him. You know, all these other questions that were given him, he doesn't really answer the question that they're asking. He answers the question they ought to be asking or the question beneath the question. But here he actually answers the question, which suggests that the scribe is at least asking the right question. Verses 29 through 30 says this. Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Right, this is the foundation of all the laws. What, what Jesus is quoting from here is from the Old Testament. It's called the Shema. 
and which is found in Deuteronomy 6.5. And this is something that devout Jews of that day and still today recite every morning and evening. It's, it's their, their creed. It defined them as a people. And Jesus is saying, this is the foundation of, of which all the laws, all the rules rest. This is what all the laws are built on. This is the thing that gives them a solid foundation and, and orients God's people to the world. And you know, one commentator on this uh, points out that this statement is so important because it teaches two, uh, two truths for the people. It teaches them what is true and what they are supposed to do. So what is true is the hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. This is their foundational truth. You know, for us, this seems like, oh, it seems like a pretty simple truth, okay. But at this time, you know, all the ancient religions were polytheistic. They had many gods. So the idea of there being one God made Israel very controversial. It set them apart. Because if there's only one true God, the God of Israel, then that means all the other gods are false gods. And so in this claim, he's saying the God of Scripture isn't just the, the best choice of all. He's not just the top dog of all the other gods, but he's the only one. He's the only true God. This is their unique claim. All, all other Nathan, nations would have, would have gladly adopted Yahweh as one of many gods that they would pray to in a time of need to see which one answered the prayer the way they wanted. Um, but there's only one God. All other gods are false gods if there is only one, and that one is Yahweh. So if this claim is true, then it also means that every single person must treat God as God. So what do we do with this God? Well, he says here, he says to love him. Love him. You know, the command uses the language of love, which is interesting. It doesn't say obey him. It doesn't say submit to him, confess to him. It says love him. But the greatest commandment at the, at the core is, is, a, is a command upon your loves. What do you worship? Obedience and submission to the laws of God are a matter of your Loves. What does this look like? What well, looks like giving to God all of your love, which is what it says here. It says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, which, you know, the heart in this day is the, the seat of the will. It's, it's not talking about your feelings, but the core of who you are as a person, with all that you are, with all your soul, which speaks to your inmost desires, with all your mind, which means all your mind and its strength and intellectual pursuit is, is, is transfigured by God. And with all your strength, which means you put all your might into this. There's, there's a, it, it, it's hard work. It's like this full-bodied experience. You hold nothing back. Your whole life trained in the love of God, defined by it. But he's saying this is who you are as a person. right? Which makes sense because your loves, your worship is your identity. Right? You are what you worship, Scripture teaches us. So whatever creed is foundational to you actually tells, tells us your identity. This is what identified God's people. This was the foundation which held all the laws together. And apart from the Shema, this, this central truth, God's laws fall apart. It's a foundation that is meant to be built on, that's meant to have your life shaped by it. So practically, then, what does this mean to us? What does it mean to love God with all that you are? We're going to explore other aspects of this you know, at the end, but to be trained in loving God... I think there's an aspect where you need to actually practice loving God, right? When you get married, you love your spouse, but you actually grow in your love the longer you're married and the longer you pursue each other, right? When you get married, you think that that's like the peak love, but that's actually just the beginning of love, right? 
Um, pursuing God is, is much like that. Christ is our great husband and we grow in love with him as we practice love. Well, what is the practice of love? Well, for the, for the Christian, it's worship, right? It's this regular time in prayer, walking with him in all of life, coming together to the table and word, sacrament and prayer, right? We're trained into it as, as we commune with God and his people around the world. As we remember his love for us and the comfort of the gospel applied to us weekly, we grow in this love. This is why our weekly worship is so important because when you forsake the assembly, it's easy for your love to grow cold. Just like in a marriage, when you forsake the things that make you married from the physical aspects to the emotional aspects, you grow cold towards each other. And so when we forsake worship together, communing with God, with his people, we can grow cold to the things of God. And it's never a fast thing. It's that slow thing that you don't even notice is happening to you. And the truth is, there's a million other things vying for your worship, vying for your love. And so if you're not pouring yourself into the thing that actually can hold your love, it's going to get stolen from all the other things that are trying to creep in. So this first application of this great foundation of God's law is to simply to love him and to submit yourself to the, the practice of love, which is worship. You worship what you love and you become like what you worship. And out of, out of this love grows the, the second aspect to this foundation of God's law, that when you worship God and, and are shaped by his love for you and your love for him, you actually become like him. Loving the things that he loves, and he loves our neighbors. This is the second aspect of the foundation of God's law is love neighbor. Uh, in this, Jesus both gives the scribe more than he asks for, right? And he also welds these two commandments together to make them one. Let's look at this in verse 31. It says this, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There was no other commandment greater than these. Right? And in this second aspect of the foundation, Jesus is quoting here from Leviticus 19. And uh, you know this, you've heard this before, it's the, the golden rule. You know, almost every religious and non-religious tradition has some form of this, right? Treat your neighbor as you want to be treated. But Jesus here is the first to actually bring these two together, Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 6. And in, in doing so, he says, listen, you can't have one without the other. And he merges them together and he says here that there is no other commandment singular than these. These two commandments are one. They're not to be separated. So how are we supposed to love our neighbors? Well, Jesus says here, like you love yourself. Right? All the good you want for yourself, the life you want for yourself, the joy and peace and happiness that you strive for for yourself, that you pursue for yourself, you're supposed to want and pursue those things for your neighbor. And if you're self-aware at all in this room, uh, you know how much you love yourself, right? This is no small demand on us. I love myself a lot. Uh, believe it or not, you could ask Jen, she'll tell you, I'm selfish at times, just at times though. And uh, so with that same vigor of love that you have for yourself, that same selfish love that you have for yourself, you're supposed to have that selfish love for your neighbor. You're supposed to give yourself for the life of your neighbor. And it says there is no greater law than this. Because if you have the, the other laws without this, you've missed it. You've built a house without a foundation. It will be washed away. As Paul says, if you don't have love, you are noisy gong. So what does this look like for us? What does this mean for us? These are not new truths for you to hear this morning. 
I, there's a million different ways you can apply this truth. Uh, and I want to get practical because I think that this is a very practical, begging for very practical application. So I, I, I want to, for the sake of time, just give us two categories to think in and how we might apply loving neighbor. And it's kind of inside the church and, and outside the church. Uh, for inside the church, right, those sitting around you are your neighbors. And one of the things about neighbor love that we can kind of get confused on is we often live in this, you know, larger than life world with whether it's internet or whether it's things happening all around the world, we forget to love the people that are actually around us, your actual neighbors, um, the people you work with, the people you sit next to in a, in a pew. We're called to love the people uh, around us. Um, and this does extend to the, to the global church and, 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 and all the all of what Christ is married to in his church. And, right, to, to love God and neighbor means to love the church of Christ. You know, as imperfect, as quirky as it is, as little as you may have in common with those sitting in this room um, outside of Jesus, as flawed as its leaders are, we are to love the church because Christ loves her. So when you see someone in need, you're to help Meet that need. When you see someone in sin, you're actually supposed to sit down and talk to them about it. Not because you're the judge, Jesus is a judge, but because you love them and you don't want them to live in sin. You invite each other to each other's houses. We extend hospitality, love of stranger to each other. We share our lives with each other. We invite the outsider in so that all here feel welcomed in by the grace of Christ, welcomed around his table. So this is this aspect, and because love of neighbor is rooted in love of, one another, of the one true God, this means that we don't dismiss it either when church does evil. Right? Loving neighbor doesn't mean ignoring sin, it actually means the opposite. Because oftentimes when you call out sin, you're actually loving your neighbor who's being sinned against. It means that, with, it means that without fear, we can call sin, sin. So whether you saw it this week, you know, reports like this week came out about the Southern Baptist convention, some of their abuse and cover-up, whether you saw it or not, doesn't matter. It won't surprise you of what can happen in the church when evil happens and cover-up happens. We should rightly abhor abuse in the church and call people to repentance and demand biblical justice. Protecting those who have been harmed is loving your neighbor. It is not loving to let our church leaders abide in sin and devour the bride of Christ. We're to protect it. So this is the aspect of loving the neighbor inside the church. But for those outside the, the church, I think one of our greatest problems is we actually expect our non-Christian neighbors to act like Christians, but we ought not uh, until they actually believe in Jesus. This is why, you know, Jesus himself went to the places where sinners dwell. You know, Luke calls Jesus the friend of sinners. He didn't expect them to not be sinners. He expected to have to go where they were to rescue them which doesn't mean that he said that the life of sin was okay, but he knew that his job was to go into the places of sin in order to rescue people, to call them to repentance. This is how you love your neighbors, which, you know, the more I think about this question that, you know, in this account in Luke, there's the obvious question, who is my neighbor? Um, almost trying to get out of loving the neighbor. Uh, and that parable, the, the good Samaritan, the more I think about the implications of that parable uh, is that the, the, the call to love your neighbor it's really a call to love your enemies. Uh, this, this means it's not going to be easy. This means you're going to have to do uncomfortable things. This means we can't expect our non-Christian neighbors or the people around us in our day-to-day -day lives to behave like they're Christians when they aren't. We, like Jesus, need to be willing to go into the world to love our enemies so much so that others call us friend of sinners. Right? And 
you know, for specific application, which these could go anywhere, but for a specific place to, to kind of tie in, this means learning how to love your neighbors that are very different than you. Your, your gay neighbors who think that you're homophobic, you're loving a transgender person who's going through physical alterations, inviting these people into your home, reaching out with love, sharing a meal. It's a really uncomfortable thing to suggest and to think about. But it is something we actually are called to do here. Right? And, and as the fruit of our, our current cultural, cultural moment begins to ripen, and as we see the, the more and more the, the fruits of the sexual revolution where people give them lives to, to their sexual identity, no matter what that is, uh, people are going to come to the end of themselves and realize that that is a dead-end identity. And they are going to be open to turning to the things of God. And the question for us is, will we be ready to love them when they come to us? When they finally have run the course of their lives and realize it's their, their current uh, lifestyle choice is not going to fulfill them the way they think it will. Loving like this is going to be messy. I think oftentimes the things that keeps us from us is, is fear, right? Fearful for how, how is this going to look if we do this? Will people think that I promote a homosexual lifestyle if there's a, a gay couple in our church? Or will people think that I'm pro-transgender uh, if I listen to a story of someone who's transgender and have compassion on them? I think this is where we ought to remember two things from Jesus. Is for one, this is what happened to Jesus when he hung out with sinners. They called him a drunkard. And he did not care. We're called to faithfulness. You cannot control what someone else thinks. Secondly, because love of neighbor is, is tethered to loving the one true God, it doesn't mean we excuse sin. Loving the one true God means that he has spoken on issues of gender and sexuality. When Jesus dined with the sick and the outcasts of society and the sinners, he didn't baptize their way of life and say it was good and be like, no, just chill, man, just follow me too. He said, no, leave that lifestyle behind and follow me. He called them to repentance. He loved them. So how are they sick to know the love of Christ if we never show them the love of Christ that we've experienced? If we never go to them, if, if they never experience the kindness that leads to repentance, how will they repent? This is, this is the world that we're called into. We are called to love like Jesus loved, calling people to repentance, which is to turn to the, from the kingdom of the, the present age, which will end in your death, to the true and lasting kingdom of God, which is eternal. And this idea of kingdom is actually where this passage lands here. Uh, and uh, and it's, we find that it's the one thing that the scribe has yet to taste himself, right? And his response here, the scribe says, you're right. I agree with Jesus. Uh, when has that ever happened in these challenges, that the person challenging Jesus agrees with his response? I think the scribe is actually surprised. He's, he was trying to trip Jesus up, but Jesus gave him a straightforward answer that was not controversial, as one commentator points out the strangeness, he says, the scribe, right, the law expert, the expert of the law coming to challenge Jesus is left agreeing with Jesus, right? And then Jesus says this in verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him more questions. You're not far from the kingdom. Which, you know, at first glance, sounds good, right? It's better to be close to the kingdom than far, far away from the kingdom. But it also means he's not yet in it. And you get the sense that everyone understands the gravity of what's happening because they, they all fall silent and they don't dare to ask any more questions. So what does this mean when Jesus says this? He's saying, yes, you know the greatest commandments. You actually believe what I said is true is true. You understand that God's law is summarized as loving God and loving neighbor. 
And yet here you are trying to catch the Son of God in a trap so you can murder him. The irony of this situation is rich, right? They're close to the kingdom because they have the foundation, because they know the truth, but they are far because they have not built their lives on it. They've not done anything with this foundation. Like my neighbors growing up, they haven't done anything with the foundation. Now it's crumbled. How easy is it for us to love the theory of the law, to love the theory of God, but we miss Jesus when he's right in front of us. And what Jesus is saying here is, I want your love. I demand your worship. The foundation of the law is not just this idea. It's not just meant to be in a book and put on a shelf. It is meant to be the foundation of your life, to be acted out in real life. It's meant to shape everything that you do. And this is where it can be easy for us to look at this story and be like, man, what a poor scribe. Glad I'm not that guy. Um, but if we're honest with ourselves, we are that guy. Right? The sinking truth of this is that we are the scribe. We are the ones who struggle to love God and love our neighbor. We don't do it well. We're satisfied with a foundation without a house. So what do we do with this, with this reality that we're stuck in? Where we can't even do the thing that Jesus is calling us to do. Well, what does Jesus tell us at the beginning of Mark about the way into the kingdom of God? He tells us the way into the kingdom is repentance. It's not your perfection. It's not your doing, right? It's not your law keeping. It's repentance. And what is repentance but laying your deadly doing down, saying, I can't do this. I cannot get into your kingdom on my own. This is what the scribe failed to do. He thought he could earn his way, obey the laws enough, and he would get into the kingdom, but it's impossible. You cannot get into God's kingdom on your own. And it's for this reason that Jesus came to earth, right? The one who loved God perfectly with all that he was, held nothing back. The one who loved his neighbor as he loved himself to the point of death on the cross, right? We are his neighbor. While we were his enemies, he died for us. No greater love is there than this, right? Than laying your life down for your neighbor. Jesus shows the greatest love that there ever has been by laying his life down and rising to new life so that you might taste his kingdom. A kingdom that you can only get to through Christ. And as we understand and grow in these beautiful truths that, that, that root us in the gospel, right? his love for us while we were his enemies, the more we're going to be shaped by his love for us to love others. Because we begin to understand right, the helpless, lost person out there, the one that seems gross to us, the sinner, is no different than you are. And that's who Jesus came to save when he saved us. And as God calls us into his kingdom, we begin to be shaped by this new kingdom and learn to love as God loves. So understanding this great truth of the gospel is actually the thing that compels us to loving God with all that we are and loving our neighbors. It's not to earn favor with God, but because of the amazing truth that you already have all the favor he could ever give, you can love others now secured in his grace and in his gospel. You're already in the kingdom if you believe in him. This is the sure foundation and identity that you get to live out of, that you get to be messy out of, that you get to make mistakes out of, and you can freely make mistakes in loving God and loving neighbor because you are sure in your relationship with Christ because what he has done for you cannot be undone. This is your sure foundation. right? Because you are loved perfectly by the Father, you can now reach out and love your neighbor even though it will be hard at times, even though you're going to mess up in it, even though you might even be rebuked for it. Because your foundation is sure, you, you just won't care. Your identity as a child of God is secure. And as we learn to love as God loved, we become lights in the darkness. Our, our lives become testimonies of the one who first loved us. This isn't to say this will be easy. This takes practice. 
It is hard work, but it is the work that we are called into as God's people, as his bride, because Christ is leading us. We can enter into it with great confidence that it will work. May we here at St. Andrews be a people who don't just say we believe in these truths, but who learn to rest in them. And in resting in them, may we build our lives on them. May we encourage one another towards this and and for the glory of Christ. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, I give you thanks for your word. Your, Your word which both convicts and challenges us and shows us our need and then comforts us and shows us that you have supplied all that we could ever ask for and more. May we rest in the good news of the gospel. And as we rest in your gospel, may we live our lives out of the truth that our identity in you is secure. And may we be your witness to the ends of this earth to call others to the life that we have in you, knowing that with you and you alone, there is life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.